Today's podcast is brought to you by newspapers.com, the ultimate destination for exploring the mysteries of the past. If you're fascinated by true crime, get ready to dive into the stories that made headlines. Newspapers.com offers a billion pages of historical newspapers from the U.S. and beyond, and you can search the entire collection in seconds. Their vast newspaper collection is a goldmine for eyewitness accounts, crime scene photos, news reports, and more. Whether you're interested in famous crimes or long-forgotten cases, Newspapers.com gives you a front-row seat to more than 300 years of history. For our listeners, Newspapers.com has a special offer. Use the code CUPOFMURDER for an exclusive 20% discount on your subscription. That's promo code CUPOFMURDER at Newspapers.com. Sign up today and start unraveling the true crime mysteries that keep you up at night. Sometimes going to the grocery store can be chaotic. There doesn't seem to be enough time to check the list, make sure everything is there, search for the best prices, and take the time to make sure you get the best quality meat. So let ButcherBox help you out. Giving you peace of mind, ButcherBox delivers high-quality meat and seafood that you can trust straight to your door. No grocery carts required. Humanely raised, no antibiotics or hormones, 100% grass-fed, free-range, and crate-free, What? more can you ask for? What about free shipping, customized box plans, exclusive member deals, recipe inspirations, tips, and tricks? You really can't go wrong with ButcherBox. Sign up at butcherbox.com slash morning cup and get our special deal. ButcherBox is offering our listeners a free for a year offer plus an additional $20 off. Choose salmon, chicken breasts, or steak tips free in every order for a year. Sign up today at butcherbox.com slash morning cup and use code morning cup to choose your free for a year offer plus get $20 off your first order. There were two more murders 15 miles away. When police arrived, they found the telephones and electricity lines. We have a weird homicide. A scene described by one investigator as reminiscent of a weird... Morning. Cup of murder. Some cases twist and turn like a roller coaster. Today's story is one of those crazy rides. On November 26, 2010, a young girl disappeared in a case that saw a determined magistrate who was willing to go down any rabbit hole to find her killer. So if you like your coffee hot but your bones chilled, sit back and start your day with a morning cup of murder. Yara Gambriasio, born May 21st, 1997, was just 13 years old when she decided to leave home and head to the Brimbate di Sopra Sports Center. Just a few hundred meters away from her Italian home, Yara was preparing for a rhythmic gymnastics performance in just a few days and needed to drop off a stereo to her instructor. When she said her goodbyes to her family members on November 26, 2010, it was the last time any of them saw the beloved girl alive ever again. When 7 p.m. rolled around and Yara was still not home, her mother made a call to her phone at 7.11 and was sent straight to voicemail. 20 minutes later, still no word, her father decided to call the police and the call was put through to the public prosecutor's office. On duty that night was Leticia Ruggeri, a former police officer who had been a magistrate for about 15 years and knew exactly what the next course of action needed to be. Within moments, she had dispatched both the state police officers and the military police and sent everyone to Brambate de Sopra. Speaking with the girls' gym instructor, they learned that Yara was last seen earlier that day doing some light training and then heading back home. 
Officers quickly learned that the last known contact with the girl was a text message sent to her friend, Martina, at 6.44 p.m., agreeing to meet at 8 a.m. the following Sunday, the day of the performance, and that a few of the people at the gym said they saw two men near the area who were possibly engaged in a conversation with Yara, standing near a red car. With very little else to go off of, Leticia called in tracker dogs, who instead of going the normal route from the gym to Yara's home in Via Rampinelli, ran in the opposite direction towards a small hamlet called Mapello. Looking deeper into her phone records, the dog's tracking was confirmed when they found that the last ping on her phone took place in Mapello at about 7.49 that evening. Though nothing really connected a family member to the disappearance, due diligence had to be done, and over the next handful of days, Leticia and her team questioned everyone in the Gambriasio family, as well as placed wiretaps on hundreds of phones and attempted to trace the owners of all 1,500 handsets that might have passed through Metpello on the day of the disappearance. One of those phones belonged to a Moroccan man named Mohamed Fikri, who, in a wiretapped conversation in late November, was heard saying the phrase, Forgive me, God, I didn't kill her. After the statement was translated by an interpreter, investigations into his whereabouts began, and soon found that he had been working in a builder's yard in Mapello at the time that Yara disappeared. Unfortunately, by the time these connections were made, Mohammed had boarded a boat and was heading for Tangiers. On December 4th, 2010, they managed to intercept the ship and officially arrest Mohammed Fikri. But despite searching his van and finding a blood-stained mattress, the man was quickly cleared. The phrase determined to have been mistranslated, and he was set free. While the media continued to hound Yara's family, forcing them to lock themselves away to avoid overzealous and invasive news cameras, they were desperate to find the young girl and in hopes of aiding with that discovery, made the hard decision to share personal photos of her to the press and make a public plea for any information. Three months passed before, on February 26, 2011, a man named Ilario Scotti called the police and said he knew where her body was. On that day, he'd been flying his radio-controlled plane about six miles away from Bembate di Sopra when the device started to malfunction and he was forced to bring it down into some tall weeds. When he picked up the plane, he caught sight of some rags littering the ground. And though he wasn't sure what it was to begin with, he noticed a small pair of shoes and realized what he had just found. Getting the call that Yara's body might have been located, her mother rushed to the crime scene and, though her body was in an advanced stage of decomposition, she recognized the black bomber jacket and Hello Kitty sweatshirt as belonging to her daughter. Also found at the scene were Yara's iPod, house keys, and both the SIM card and battery to her LG phone. The phone itself, missing, Yara's body was taken in for an autopsy where Italy's most famous forensic pathologist, Professor Cristina Catanio, went to work and found what appeared to be traces of lime in her respiratory passages, as well as jute on her clothing. She showed no signs of being raped, though her bra was found unhooked, but there were signs that she had been injured multiple times with some sort of sharp weapon that pierced her clothing. It seemed to experts that she had been attacked, abandoned, and died of exposure. Though the exact cause of death was not publicly released, leaked details suggest that it was a combination of a head blow, like being hit with a stone, 
or falling onto a hard surface, the non-fatal wounds, and hypothermia. With the presence of lime and jute suggesting the killer might be in the building trade, a forensic team managed to take two DNA samples from the scene, one from her discarded battery and another on her black gloves, but neither matched any of their records. However, two months later, Leticia got a call stating that the murder had a signature and that male DNA had been found on the girl's undergarments. Likely from injuring himself during the struggle, Leticia and her team named the suspect Ignato One, unknown one, and the search for the man picked up speed. With DNA to compare, Leticia divided up the responsibilities and sent the state police to take samples from family members, school friends, and people in the gym, while the military police devoted all of their attention to phone records, cross-referencing all mobile phones that moved through the area on the day that she disappeared, and when those numbers were tracked down, they too were asked for DNA samples. As manpower hours increased rapidly, as did the cost of the investigation as a whole, with it going on to be one of the most expensive manhunts in Italian history, Yara's funeral took place in May of 2011, with absolutely no leads in the case, despite the thousands of samples taken. Shifting gears slightly that spring, Leticia realized that, near where the girl was abandoned in those weeds, was a nightclub called Quicksand. Realizing that killers tend to dump bodies where they are familiar, she ordered DNA samples to be taken from outside the club on their busy Fridays and Saturdays, in hopes of finally finding a match. Though the club was on the seedier side, clubbers were required a membership card to get in. So because of that, police were able to easily track down everyone who went there regularly and on the night that Yara disappeared. With that, they finally got their first real break in the case. One of the samples taken from patrons at the club bore a striking similarity to the one belonging to Ignoto One. Though not an exact match, police finally got the name Damiano Ghirinoni. Quickly excluded as a suspect, he had been in South Africa the day of the disappearance, geneticists on the case were certain that he was at least closely related to their murderer. As Leticia and her team dug deeper into the Giri Noni family, they had no clue that they had just jumped straight into a twisty turny rabbit hole of information. The first discovery was that Damiano's mother, Aurora Zani, had worked as a domestic help inside of Yara's home for 10 years, lived nearby, and had visited the home twice a week throughout the girl's childhood. A well-liked part of their family, Aurora remembered Yara excitedly showing off her latest gymnastics moves and how she would often plead with the young girl to please be careful. In 2011, she was no longer working for the family, but said that her relationship with them was an excellent one. When she found out that the DNA placed her in the center of this investigation, Aurora would later state that it was the, quote, worst thing that could happen to me. Having both mother and son followed, calls tapped, questioned, and pressed for answers, after a few months, Leticia came to the conclusion that the whole thing was one big coincidence and that neither Damiano or Aurora were involved in the murder. Left with just the similar DNA, the one-year mark came and went as Leticia and her team were placed under the intense pressure to find their killer. But thousands had been tested, Calls traced and tapped, hundreds of people questioned, and they seemed no closer to finding their answers as politicians started to make personal attacks on Leticia Regeri. 
criticisms that seem to have a strong undertone of sexism. Undeterred and hell-bent to solve the case, she decided to concentrate on the only lead she had, Damiano's DNA. Tracing his complete family tree all the way back to 1815, with some branches going back to 1716, she learned that the family tree was deeply rooted in the small village of Gorno, about 45 minutes away, in an area that was populated by about 1,600 people. A place described as, quote, a bit too hot in every sense, and, quote, promiscuous. Outside the small village church, the names Benedetto and Pietro Ghirinoni were carved upon the stone. With the family nicknamed the Infantry, the Ghirinonis were loyal, strong, and a bit hot-headed. Learning that Damiano's father had a brother named Giuseppe, who died in 1999, Letizia and her investigators decided to look into his widow, and in September of 2011, found two stamps that he licked prior to his death. DNA tests were run on the paper, and when the results came back, they realized that Giuseppe, though not the killer, definitely fathered Ignoto One. Digging into his life, investigators learned that Giuseppe had been a bus driver whose marriage to Laura Poli resulted in three children, a girl and two boys. Concentrating on those two boys, Pier Paolo and Diego, both were tested and neither was a perfect match. Scratching their heads, investigators wondered how Ignoto One could be the son of Giuseppe Ghirinoni, but not a match to either of his boys. The only plausible explanation was that somewhere out there was an illegitimate son. Starting a whole new investigation within Yara Gambriasio's case, they went searching for a woman, about 30 or 40 years old, who might have had an affair with Giuseppe prior to his death. Learning that, for two weeks every May, Giuseppe used to go to a spa south of Milan, they began scouring the records and tracking down all of the women who also attended the resort at the same time. Also searching orphanages and homes for, quote, fallen women, they tested anyone they could before coming to the conclusion that the mistress they were looking for was likely married as well. While Leticia and her team started looking for a married woman who birthed their killer, Yara's parents hired their own expert who could look into and inform them about the, up until this point, pretty secretive investigation. Fighting to exhume Giuseppe's body, their wish was granted on March 7, 2013, and the remains were transferred by military police to a hospital in Bergamo. Fearing the investigation was wrong about the connection between the deceased and Ignoto One, tests were run on the body and it determined conclusively that he must have fathered Yara's killer. By 2013, rumors started to swirl that the police were looking for a woman who had an affair with Giuseppe Ghirinoni, and before long, old suspicions resurfaced between long-married couples. While trying to remind everyone that the case, at its core, was about the death of a little girl, Leticia's right-hand man, Marshal Giovanni Mosserino, dug so deep into Giuseppe's life that he considered himself an expert on the man. Realizing that he worked for a bus company and likely came into contact with many a woman, he started asking fellow bus drivers about the man at the center of their investigation. With one such driver going public about what he knew, Mosserino soon found out that Giuseppe confessed to getting a young girl, quote, in trouble, while another said that he was a known womanizer. 
Then finally, in June of 2014, Whispers gave the name that would put together the final pieces of this bizarre puzzle. Esther Arzufi was a neighbor of Giuseppe's and at the age of 19, married a man named Gianni Bossetti. A mismatched pairing, Esther got a job at a nearby textile factory and took the bus every single day to her job. Cross-checking the DNA samples they had, Leticia's team soon realized that Esther's DNA had already been tested back in July of 2012. Going further, they realized that a basic error had been made by a geneticist in Rome, and for some reason, Esther's DNA was tested against Yara's instead of Ignoto 1's. Rerunning the test, they found that Esther was indeed the suspect's mother. Finding out that she left the area in 1970, but continued the affair with Giuseppe, Esther gave birth to twins, a boy and a girl, the same year that she left. The boy's name was Massimo Bossetti. Nicknamed the animal by his friends, Massimo, now 42 years old, was a known partier, was a husband, had three children of his own, and was living in Mapello, a hamlet near where Yara lived, and the location of her last known cell phone ping. Moving fast, Leticia and her team set up a fake roadblock on June 15, 2014, to breathalyze drivers. When Massimo was stopped, they pretended the machine malfunctioned in order to try and get two good DNA samples. It was immediately sent overnight for testing, and when it came back, the results said conclusively that Massimo Bassetti was Ignoto 1. Arrested the next day and charged with the murder of Yara Gambriasio, the circumstantial evidence against him began piling up. It was found that Massimo was frequently near Yara's home, that he parked his car behind the gym, that he ate at a pizzeria at the end of her road, and regularly tanned at a shop nearby. Between that and his troubling internet searches, most of which implied a compulsion towards underage girls, as well as his cell phone records, it was clear to them that they had gotten the right guy and that it was time to take him to trial. Claiming his innocence and stating that someone stole his work tools, which would contain his DNA, Massimo was denied any chance at a plea bargain or a confession and was brought to the courts. With some claiming that the DNA was actually not a match, the defense attempted to paint another, Sylvia Brenna, as a potential suspect. Sylvia's blood was found on the sleeve of Yara's jacket, and on the night of Yara's disappearance, her father testified that she cried all night long. Later claiming she had no recollection of such an action, she had no explanation for why she texted her brother at the time of Yara's disappearance and how the text was immediately deleted by both siblings. Despite these claims, Massimo Bassetti was found guilty and on July 1st, 2016, was sentenced to life imprisonment. All appeals and requests to access police findings were denied, but Massimo maintains his innocence. Because of this, the true details of Yara Gambriosio's final moments might never be known. Thank you for joining me in my morning cup of murder. Please join me again tomorrow to what terrible thing happened on November 27th. Don't forget to rate and subscribe and let me know how you like it. If you want to help support the podcast, there is always Patreon or just sharing it with your true crime obsessed friends. And remember, stay safe.